Some of you have heard us say a number of times, and if you've been around long enough, you've heard us say it a bunch. We, uh, we've been in this two-year event called Greater with a goal to raise $7.5 million over a two-year period uh, so that we could achieve, we could continue chasing after some really important goals to us. We want to keep making disciples, reaching our cities, and change the world. Making disciples is what we do every day as a church, from kids to students to worship to outreach to groups. I mean, it really is kind of the fuel behind everything we do uh, as a church. Reaching our cities means having facilities that will allow us to better serve the communities that we've been called to. And we know that we need to make some physical improvements to our Carmel campus, uh, but also here with our Noblesville campus, as we've shared before, our our time here is limited. We lease this space. And so we've been praying and trusting the Lord for a new, uh, more permanent location. And then Change the World is all about generosity beyond the walls of our church, uh, supporting ministries here locally, ministries like Shepherd Community Center, and as far as away as places like Last Bell Ministries serving in Ukraine. And so a $7.5 million goal over two years, $4.2 million of that is two years of operating expenses, our budget. $3 million goal for that would be four facilities. And I think if my math is right, that leaves $300,000, which is just generosity above and beyond the generosity we already extend every year as a church. And so we launched uh, in February 2020. There's a lot of excitement and anticipation. If you were around, you remember much of that. We were praying and believing and trusting for how God was going to work through us and use it. We invited all of you to pray and just pray, God, what would you do through me? Like, it's going to take every single one of us to achieve this big goal. I'll never forget Thursday, March the 12th, 2020. I was standing just outside these double doors in the hallway, and it was a Thursday, and my phone was blowing up with texts. The Big Ten tournament was canceled, which personally I had tickets, so I was a little upset by that. Uh, schools were closing. There was talk that the governor might issue a stay-at-home order, and churches all around us were canceling worship services. COVID forced our leaders to make one of the most difficult decisions I've ever personally had to be a part of, and that was a decision to cancel worship services and events. And I don't know about you, but that time period for me personally was so hard. Um, I remember being afraid. I remember being very confused. You know, there were so many questions that all of us were asking, right? So many questions about everything in life, including what do we do about greater? And really even thoughts of does this even matter anymore? Like is it, is it even worth continuing with something like this? Why do we proceed? And you might remember that we didn't have an online ministry presence at that time, but uh, thanks to some really gifted and talented people, we were able to get that up and running in a matter of days, and we made some adjustments to our planning. And within a week, even after moving some things around, going online with services, we decided that we would have and host our Greater Commitment Sunday online. And I just have to tell you, it's not not every pastor's dream to be a television evangelist, all right? We don't all dream for that. And hosting an online telethon is not something we ever talked about in school either, but that day came, we hosted it online, and I think we all wondered, how's this going to play out? Will God be faithful? And I'll just be honest and say, I had some doubts too of wondering, do I want to be faithful in this? And I guess I shouldn't be surprised by the circumstances, because if you were around, you might remember that we chose the, the life of Abraham 
and his story is kind of a teaching theme uh, for the uh, events kind of leading through greater at that time. And in Genesis chapter 12, God instructed Abraham and his family to leave everything they had ever known and to go to a new, far-off, foreign place, something that they could not see, but just trust God, trust that God would lead them through this. And how did Abraham respond? The text says that Abraham went by faith even though he couldn't see where he was going. And so there was the unknown, this uncharted territory for Abraham, but he went by faith. That was Abraham's story, and in a crazy sort of way, it kind of became our story too. And so we entered that commitment Sunday, and many of you stepped up in faith. And when I say many, I'm talking about kids. We had kids make commitments. We had students that made financial commitments. Uh, Many families made commitments. Together as a church, we pledged $2.4 million towards the $7.5 million goal. Now, $2.4 million is a lot of money. I mean, it really is. And I, I could tell you some awesome stories of people who committed and committed in faith. But let's be real, $2.4 million is a long way off from a $7.5 million goal. Was I disappointed? I, I'd be lying if I didn't say I was a little disappointed. Was I surprised? Not really. I mean, all of us were reeling. I mean... No one had any idea what would happen and how long this would take and what the course would be, what the future would hold. But I sensed, and many of you expressed and encouraged with your words and with your faith that we should keep moving. We should keep trusting the Lord even though we can't see where we're going. And now two years behind us, like so many of you have given faithfully, so many of you have trusted the Lord like never before, some of you not ready to commit in that March of 2020, committed later and jumped in, we've got people giving for the first time ever, again, kids and students included, so many new people have jumped in along the way, and even if you don't make a commitment, some of you have just given very, very faithfully, and of course, there have been surprises and blessings too, would you like to know where we stand today in regards to our goal of seven and a half million, get this, We had a $7.5 million goal, $2.4 million pledged. As of January 31st, through God's provision, together, you have given $7 million towards our $7.5 million goal. Isn't that awesome? Like, I mean, it's just... I mean, like, like you know, it's just, like, how do you even talk about that moment? Like, I mean, that, that that God has provided through our church family you know, those resources. Like the seven and a half million was crazy to begin with. I mean, it really was. I mean, as we kind of sought wise counsel and setting a goal, like, I mean, that was like far beyond anything we had ever done together as a church. And you still have toward till Easter to give. So we still have time even to reach that goal. I just want you to see why this is a celebration. Like we really are celebrating together these next four weeks. And and I, I got to say thank you, and first and foremost, to our, our God in heaven. Like, all of the credit and all of the glory goes to him. Like, this, this is all from him, and it's all for him, and by his leadership and his grace and his provision through you. And so we thank the Lord, but I got to say thank you to you all as well. I, I am so grateful for this church family. I love being a part of this church. I'm so thankful for you. I love you, and so thank you. Thanks for your faith. Thank you for trusting the Lord. Uh, Thanks for trusting our leadership, for trusting our church. Over the next few weeks, we're going to share some updates. Uh, we're going we're gonna to show you some important numbers so that you can see how this money is being utilized and resourced. And we're also going to talk a little bit about where we think God is leading from here. But before we do anything else, let's pray and give thanks to the Lord for his faithfulness and provision. God, it is all for you and it is all from you. And we thank you. We thank you for your grace 
We thank you for leading us, for leading uh, families, for leading individuals, especially over these last couple of years. They have been hard. They've been challenging in all sorts of ways. People have experienced loss, Lord, even loss in our church and in ways that they'll never forget. But we thank you. We thank you for your provision. Thank you for uh, providing through us, Lord. Thank you for stretching our faith and growing our faith. Uh, it's all for you. And uh, we are trusting you. We are trusting you for today and tomorrow and in the weeks to come, Lord. Uh, have your way in us, Lord. Continue to lead our church family. We are here to serve you. We are to help uh, here to, to point people to Jesus. And we want to see more and more lives find their way back to you. And so we are trusting you, God. And again, we offer this time to you this morning and all of our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we studied uh, Abraham two years ago, but we also chose a passage uh, from the New Testament, a verse that gave us our theme. These are the words of John the Baptist, and they express what a life fully surrendered to Jesus looks like. They come right out of John chapter 3, verse 30, when John the Baptist said that he, that Jesus Christ, must become greater and I must become less. And John the Baptist's influence and popularity was growing as a preacher. And when someone asked him about his fame in relation to Jesus, John the Baptist replies, hey, here's what the world needs. They don't need more of me. They need more of Jesus Christ. Jesus must become greater. I must become less. And as many of you know, since the beginning of the year, we've been reading and studying through the book of John. And as it turns out, John chapter 3, verse 30 was a part of the reading plan this past week. And I love that. And I wish we could say we're that good but we're not, and so it's fun how that works out, and it only seems fitting as we launch this four-week celebration of God's faithfulness in our lives and in our church that we remind ourselves that it's not about us, that it's all about Jesus, that we are here for him and all that we do. We want to make the name of Jesus Christ greater. That means we've got to become less. Here's the hard part. Learning to make Jesus greater while I become less goes against every natural instinct uh, inside of us. Because I think if we're honest, there is something, and maybe something in many of us here today, that would say, you know what, I want Jesus to be greater. I want him to be the Lord over every part of my life as long as it doesn't interfere with my life, as long as it doesn't interfere with my plans that we've or already have made. And so in order for Jesus to become greater in all that we do, we've got to learn to serve surrender every day, surrender everything that we have and hope to be to him and to trust him completely, even when it's difficult, even when it's awkward, even when it doesn't make sense. Thankfully for us, this was a lesson that Jesus' disciples had to learn over and over and over again. And we're going to see another example of that today. Turn to John chapter 4, uh, if you have your Bibles. John chapter 4. We'll have the words on the screen as well. Today we're going to meet a woman whose encounter with Jesus will not only change her life forever, but we're going to see how God is going to use her changed life to reach a city and to transform a community. And so John chapter 4 begins by telling us that Jesus was gaining more and more followers each day, but instead of playing to the crowds, Jesus instead hit the road with his disciples. John records this for us. One of his disciples in John chapter 4, verses 3, Three and four. It says, So Jesus and his disciples, John included, left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. And at first glance, this might seem like an unnecessary logistical note for us, but John is actually letting us know that Jesus is doing something unconventional here, something that would have bothered his disciples. What's that? They're going through Samaria. Here's why that's a big deal. 
If you look at the map of the Mideast, Jerusalem sits here, really in the middle of Israel. This is where Jesus and his disciples were up till John chapter 3. They're going to leave to go to the Sea of Galilee. Typically, what most people would do as they made that journey was to travel east over to the Jordan River Basin and then travel north up to the Sea of Galilee. The closest, fastest route was to go through Samaria, but any devout Jew wouldn't dare step foot in Samaria because the Jews and Samaritans hated one another. And not like how IU and Purdue fans just kind of get under each other's skin a little bit. This is hatred on a deep level. This is hatred between the Jews and Samaritans that was deeply rooted in racial and religious differences. And this uh, hatred had been deepening for about 700 years. And Jesus knew that. And his disciples were aware of it too. But according to John chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus had to go through Samaria. In other words, this was God's idea. God's up to something. And Jesus is obediently responding to the will of his father. And why now? Like, was this just a clever way of getting away from the crowds because no crowd would dare follow them into Samaria? Or could there be a person whose life needed saved? Verse 5, John writes, he says, So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. There are a number of fascinating details in this story that you should study on your own because we don't have time to cover all of them today. But don't miss these details because John gives us a glimpse of how human Jesus really was when he says that Jesus was tired, that Jesus was thirsty. Verse 7 says, When a Samaritan woman came to draw water... Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And then a footnote here of his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. And so picture this. Jesus is sitting there, you know, in the middle of the wilderness, really, this well, sitting alone in Samaria, tired and thirsty. And all of a sudden, here comes a Samaritan woman. And in spite of 700 years of racial and religious tension, Jesus did what he does so well. He embraced the tension of the moment, and this time he did it by asking a woman for a drink, which might not seem that crazy to us, not really a big deal. But in this culture, for a Jewish man to ask a Samaritan woman for a drink was absolutely unheard of. Get this, to start, a devout Jewish man would rarely communicate with his wife or female, you know, his daughters in public, let alone a Samaritan woman. But Jesus is pushing past all of the social barriers, and he speaks to this woman. Add to it, the Jews would have considered anything that a Samaritan touched to be unclean. And yet Jesus seems willing to drink from her water pitcher. And the woman, she's just as shocked as any devout Jew would have been. Look at her response In verse 9, John writes, the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew, all right, I'm a Samaritan woman. How in the world can you ask me for a drink? Because again, Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you 
living water. In ancient cultures like these, there were a few different water sources that people would go to for water. There were wells that were dug, like in this occasion. There were cisterns that would be constructed that would collect storm water when it was available, and that could be stored. But the Greek word that John uses here for living water refers to fresh, uh, bubbling up, flowing water, water that would be collected from a, a spring or from a stream or a river. That was preferred. That was considered a valuable resource. When Jesus offered this woman living water, in her mind, she's thinking that Jesus has got some insider information about a better water source nearby. Look at her reply, verse 11. She said, Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? Are you, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself? as did also his sons and his livestock. And so Jesus has her attention, but she's asking questions about H2O, right? She's, she's got you know, drinking water in mind. And so Jesus takes the conversation one step further. Verse 13, Jesus answered her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Do you see how Jesus leveraged this simple conversation about water and thirst and used it to address this deep spiritual longing that was not only in this woman, but the fact is it's a longing that's inside of every single one of us. I mean, it doesn't matter who you are today. It doesn't matter what you think about church, about Jesus, about anything really. Like there, I think we'd all agree from time to time there's this desire, there's this longing uh, inside every single one of us. And this woman, you know, like many others from her village, she went to this well every single day in order to retrieve water to meet all of her physical needs. But now Jesus, he's turning the conversation from physical thirst to spiritual thirst as he offers this woman a type of living water that can satisfy the deepest longing of every soul. Look at her response, verse 15. It says, The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She's, she's still thinking at least a little about physical thirst, but if you keep reading, you'll discover that Jesus is going to engage her in this conversation about pain and brokenness and suffering in her own life, a pattern of sin in her life that certainly haunted her past and really had kind of defined her status among others in her village in the community that she calls home. And uh, if you read again, Jesus is going to ask her to, to go and get her husband. Well, but what we discover, John includes, is that she's been married five times before and is currently with a man that isn't her husband. And you wouldn't expect a conversation like that to go well. I mean, especially if, if Jesus and this woman had ne never met you, like, who are you to pry into to the affairs of my life? Again, you, you don't know the hurt that I've gone through. I mean, there's the potential that there's been abuse and, and, and you know, that she's been rejected over and over again. And, and in this particular culture, like, that's, that's not only something that haunts her past, but that's going to stick with her for the rest of her life. But, but Jesus, and as you look at this conversation, he doesn't come at her in a way that is condemning or judgmental. But he instead, he approaches the subject with grace and truth. And just like John talks about in John chapter 1, that Jesus is full of grace and he's full of truth. And for a moment, she tries to steer the conversation in a different direction to a matter of worship, something the Samaritans and Jews had fought long about. 
In fact, look at what she says in, in verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he's going to explain everything to us. And this is the opportunity that Jesus has been waiting for. Because in verse 26, Jesus responded to her, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And just for the record, this is the first time that Jesus has publicly declared that he is the Messiah that he is God's promised one. And what's interesting and really fascinating to me is that it happened in an isolated place and that God chose to do this through Jesus with a woman that no one would have ever expected. And look at what happens next. John records in verse 27. It says, Just then the disciples returned and were surprised to find Jesus talking with a woman, but no one asked, What do you want or why are you talking with her? And then look what she did. Leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Remember, the beginning of the chapter when John told us that Jesus had to go through Samaria, these words, and this changed life, help us understand why, that God brought Jesus and his disciples to this very place to encounter a woman who came looking for water. Little did she realize she was going to run right into Jesus. And now her life has been radically changed. And how do we know? She's going to return to her town, her community, and find everyone that she can and invite them to come and meet the man who had changed everything for her. We launched Greater two years ago, and we said one of the big things that we want to focus our time and energy on as a church was reaching our city for Jesus. You know, that God has put us in these communities, these particular communities, for a reason. And while reaching our city for Jesus means serving our neighbors and extending generosity beyond the walls of our church to places like our schools, we also think an important part of, our reach, of reaching our, our city is having facilities that not only serve as places of worship and places where we can do ministry all week long, but that our buildings can serve as, as meeting places and really resource centers of sorts for our community. And so, like, how cool would it be? Here's some of the things that we've talked about. Many of, of you, we've had conversations like this, that what if we could be a church? What if we could be a church facility that had doors open to the community all week long, you know, every day, all week long, just welcoming people in over the community? We weren't exactly sure how we were going to do that, but we're just trusting the Lord to make a way. Well, sure enough, over the past two years, we've seen the beginning of this work, serving with organizations in our community. Uh, uh, for example, the Carmel Youth Assistance Program has been utilizing our, our Carmel campus on a regular basis, especially during some of the darkest days of the pandemic, but helping to serve students that were needing extra time, extra tutoring. Uh, we've been able to open our doors to ministries like Young Life and Crew to be able to come in and use the facility. Uh, Shepherd Center, not to be confused with Shepherd Community Center, all right, in Indianapolis, but Shepherd Center here in Hamilton County uh, serves seniors, all right, in our county. We were able to host them here in December uh, for a large Christmas party they were hosting. Uh, the Carmel campus has served as a polling place now. The, the city recently hosted a ribbon-cutting event in our Carmel campus parking lot. I, I'm, I'm excited. I am thrilled to see how God is, is just doing this work as he would, allowing us to serve our communities in new and different ways. And as I mentioned earlier, one of the big 
focuses of Greater has been to relocate our Noblesville campus. We lease this space. We've been here for 15 years. It's been a great home. And while it has been a good location, we do believe, and for different reasons, that we are ready that the Lord is preparing us for a more permanent location. And so two years ago, we had zero dollars allocated towards the purchase of a facility or a new construction or anything like that. Today, I'm pleased to report to you that we, and this is a part of that $7 million number, we've been able to save and set aside $2.7 million so far for a new building, for a new space, and I think that deserves some celebration uh, for the Lord and for you and for your faithfulness. I mean, it's just that I believe, we believe the Lord is positioning us. He's preparing us. Uh, we, over the past few years, like we, we've learned we're focusing more and more on the, um, <clears throat> excuse me, renovation, uh, purchase of an existing facility, all right, rather than a new construction. We've looked at several buildings over the past couple of years. We really haven't found a good fit yet. There is a building that we have found that we like. There might be an opportunity there, uh, but we're just praying about it right now. Right? The Lord hasn't opened that door yet, but if something happens, like you, we're going to tell you as soon as we can, and so you can just be praying about that until we can share more. But we've also got some big plans for our Carmel campus too. Our, our Carmel campus is growing right now. We've got a great location there, and we hope to be there for a long time. But over the past year especially, we've been putting some of these resources to work. There are some new projects freshening up that space. We've got a number of other projects planned for our Carmel campus that we're going to start working on in the months to come. But again, our goal is to have facilities that not only serve as worship places, but can also be tools, kind of resource centers to serve our cities. Now, buildings don't reach people for Jesus, all right? People reach people for Jesus Christ. And we want our buildings to be gathering spaces where people can form relationships and most importantly, encounter Jesus, just like the woman at the well did in her hometown on that day. Because on that day, by the power of God, she discovered a source of living water for her dry and thirsty soul. And it happened the moment she took Jesus at, her, at his word and believed that he was God's Messiah. And God changed her life forever, but not only her life. John shows us the continuing effects that one changed life can have on an entire community. Look again how the story ends. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 39. John writes, Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Her testimony was, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged Jesus to stay with them, and he stayed for two days. And because of his words, because of Jesus, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. I love how God changed this woman's life and then used her, her stories, her gifts, and her influence, her redeemed life to reach others for Jesus too. And here's what's true for you and me. What God did in and through this woman, he can do through your life too. He can do through every single one of us. You know, every Sunday, hundreds of kids, students, and adults gather together here and in Carmel and online. We worship God together. During the week, many of you gather in groups to do life, to, to study God's word and to pray. Like, imagine what would happen or happen if, if we followed the example of this woman and, most importantly, the example of Jesus 
and took the good news of Jesus home with us and into our schools and our neighborhoods and the places we work. This is exactly what Jesus wants for his followers. This is what he wants for you and me. He wants us to reach others, to reach our cities for him. But just like the Samaritan woman, it all begins by turning to Jesus as our ultimate source of fulfillment. You know, the turning point in her life and in this story occurred when, when she and Jesus started having this conversation about the fact that she had no husband, but the truth really was that she had had five husbands and apparently was looking for number six. But one of the things you'll discover really as we continue to study John, and maybe you've seen this so far, it's repeated over and over. Just think about it. In John chapter two, there was a wedding with no wine. In John chapter 3, we met Nicodemus, and, and he was confronted with the reality that, that he couldn't earn it on his own. There was nothing he could do. His own righteousness wasn't good enough. Later in John, we'll find a crowd with no bread, a blind man with no sight, and finally in John chapter 11, a dead man named Lazarus who had no life. Here's the point. We all have this unfulfilled desire that has the potential to create a great emptiness in every single one of us and leave us dying for thirst. Like this woman in the story, we're all looking for something to satisfy us, but the reality is that Jesus Christ is the only one that can fulfill the deepest desires and needs of our souls. The woman had no husband. What is it for you? What well do you go looking to pull from? What deep inner need are you longing to fill? We look to relationships fulfillment. We look to our work for validation. We depend on money and possessions to give us a sense of security, our, our social standing, right, for a sense of identity. We go looking to these wells only to discover that any or all of these things on their own will leave us thirsting for more. But I want you to hear Jesus' words to this woman one more time but maybe his words to you. When Jesus said, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The Samaritan's woman life was changed the moment that she placed her faith in Jesus as God's Messiah. Jesus offered to this woman is his offer to you and me today and every day for the rest of our lives. Is your, is your life dry and empty? Jesus is the only one that can quench and satisfy that thirst. He offers his life to you. And all he requires is that we turn to him in faith and trust him. Trust him by faith and confess our sinfulness to him and receive the gift of his death, his life for us. And here's the good news. When you do that, your sins are forgiven washed white as snow. You are adopted into God's family, filled with his Holy Spirit. And like the Samaritan woman, you get to go out and tell all the world what Jesus has done for you. If you're ready to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ today, I'll be up front after the service. We'll have others here too. We'd love to talk or pray with you before we go. Let's pray together right now. God in heaven, we thank you for the hope, the life, the salvation, the forgiveness and redemption that we have through Jesus Christ. We thank you for your grace and pray, I pray right now, Lord, that you would give us faith to believe that Jesus' words are true. 
that only he can satisfy, that only Jesus can meet the deepest longings of our lives. Lord, have your way in us today. Lord, let that news, that good news, penetrate our hearts for those that will trust you for the first time today and put their faith in you. But also for anyone here today, Lord, who may just say, I'm struggling, I've lost my way, that those words are true for us. And they're true for us not just for eternity or for the future one day, but they're true for today. That your living water is good and reliable and satisfying for today and tomorrow and Tuesday and for every day for the rest of our lives. Thank you, Father, for giving your son, for his death, for his life, for your healing. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.